Every year during the Christmas season, we spend time and money on Christmas gifts. But did you know that the greatest and most extravagant gift was given to us by God? That gift is His Son. In our four-week series, Extravagance, we focus on great gifts God has promised us through Jesus Christ. Listen in as today's teaching pastor, Ron King, shares with us what real extravagance truly looks like. Church family, what a delight to be with you. Um, it's great to worship with you. What a thrill. And if you're just joining with us, we're in a series on generosity. Last week we began the series, and I was talking with a friend last week, and they said, You know, we didn't quite get to the definition of generosity. So I would like this is the interactive portion of what we're doing here. I'd like you to turn to a friend or someone you've just met right now and explain what you think, the picture that you envision or your definition of generosity. Would you take a second to do that? What does it mean to be generous? Go ahead, do it. Great, sir. We've got um, a lot of different thoughts, pictures, mental images of people being generous to us or our experiences of generosity. Dictionary.com gives us four little points about their definition of generosity. It's, it's the act of being unselfish. It's going over the top, not thinking of ourselves. It's being unselfish. It's being magnanimous. It's, it's being someone who's not mean or small-spirited like a Scrooge in Christmas, but someone who is over the top and thinks in a, in a great large way, someone who is abundant and also rich. Now, I have this image of being a little kid and going down the hallway and thinking about the Christmas tree and the stack of presents that are there and, and turn the corner and seeing this huge stack of sparkling presents reaching to the moon. That's the imagery when we think about the stories being told of the coming of Jesus, of the generosity of God given to us. And last week, we talked about the very beginning of this, the very first imagery of God's great generosity to us. That is the gift of life. Life right now, as you suck in air, as you breathe, you are alive because of the creative touch and the sustaining touch of the Lord God Almighty. Life, for those who have found life in the Lord God, who have placed our faith in Jesus, life, abundant life, John tells us, the richness, the fullness of life that we can experience in Him, and life eternally, that is the, the sure confidence that we will have life with God, not living in fear of our sin or guilt or shame, but free in our life because of the life-giving God. So we talked about that in that wonderful verse in John 1, 3, that reminds us that in him, that is in Jesus, was life, all of life. And that life was the light of men. It gives us direction. It, it chases out the darkness in our life and allows us to live free from guilt and regret in our past, free. And in the light, because of the light, the gift of life he has. And now we're going to turn to the next gift that we're going to unwrap. And we just get to unwrap a few of them this Christmas season. The next one is um, this gift of God's generous patience. And we're going to look in Matthew chapter 1. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 1. This is the, the word of God to us this morning. If that seems odd for you, for me to describe it as God's word, his very word to you, I would just invite you to dive into it, to read it for yourself 
and to determine yourself whether it is truly God speaking to you or just the words of a human author that have no really life-changing effect on you. But if it is God's word, it will never return without effect. It will always have an effect on you. So I invite you to turn your Bible open to Matthew chapter 1, which is the very beginning chapter in the New Testament. And if you don't have a Bible, there's some provided for you, or you can look on your phone and uh, turn to Matthew 1. Here it is, God's word to us this morning, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Remember them. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Benadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Ruth, or by Rahab, excuse me, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the, the wife of Uriah. Remember that story as well. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. That's the whole series of kings we just read. And after the deportation to Babylon, this is in the exile, Jeconiah was a father of Shetil, and Shetil, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Elakim, and Elakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Methan, Methan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Isn't that fascinating reading? Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the beginning of the greatest story ever told. And I'm asking the question, 
really? You're going to begin the greatest story ever told with that beginning? That beginning? Now, there's some great books written in the course of human history with wonderful beginnings. Great stories told that capture your attention from the very outset, right? Um, Let me, just a couple books that I really appreciate. Here's one of the introduction. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. That's a great beginning. That's C.S. Lewis, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Here's another one. It was the best of times, the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief, the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. You know what that is? Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. Here's one more. All children except one grow up. Peter Pan. Great stories, right? Great beginnings that gets your attention. So why does the Lord God, when he's beginning to tell the story of this greatest story ever told, start with a genealogy? that puts us to sleep, potentially. Now, some of you I know are theologians. I don't want to offend you. So we'll, we'll talk about that briefly. You know the theology behind it. Matthew is setting the stage. He's got primarily a Jewish audience, and he's helping them understand the credibility of Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, to be the sent one from God. And so he walks them through Jesus' lineage, his genealogy. Some of you are really into the genealogy thing. You want to you know, know where you came from. You have a lineage. Perhaps it goes through five, six, seven, eight generations. This one is 42 generations long. That's impressive. And Matthew is writing this so that his audience would understand from the outset that there is a strong credibility in who Jesus was and his lineage, his heritage, that's connected to God's faithful promise his promise of a Messiah sent to us. And it's connected to 42 generations long. That's, that's an impressive claim at the very outset. So he writes a little bit about the, the credibility. And we know it's a kingly line, right? The middle 14 generations were all kings of Israel. So Jesus comes from a kingly line, and he is going to write the story in Matthew that he actually is the king of kings. And he's got the heritage to back it up. And it's also, as I mentioned, this fulfillment of all these prophecies about the Messiah. So he writes this genealogy, but why begin such a great story in such a boring way? i got to ask that. Maybe it's just my humanity. When I'm getting into God's Word, I start asking these questions that pop up to me. When I read Matthew 1, that's one of the questions. The second question I had was, why didn't God do the birth of Jesus in a normal way? Why? Why don't you just pull it off like it typically happens? Why so unique in the story? And third, why does Joseph have to wait so long? Well, we'll get to those answers here in just a second. First, there's these names in this genealogy that strike you. If you read through the names, some of you know their stories. We don't know all of their stories, but some of the names we know. It reminds us, if you're a student of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, you know that these names are filled with this list of cheaters, and liars, and there's a prostitute listed in here, and there's killers. There are people who are murderers. There are people who worship themselves and people who attracted thousands of people into idolatry. This is a dysfunctional list of people, people who had sinned in every conceivable way, just like you. 
and me. This list of dysfunctional people reminded me, I was talking to a friend of mine this week about their Thanksgiving. I said, hey, you know, how, how was your Thanksgiving time? And they were describing for me a time they had with their family, and their family is full of dysfunctional people, and they were listing, you know, all these crazy people that they were with, and I thought, how normal, right? We were all with crazy people at Thanksgiving. You were, right? And, um, and our families are filled with all kinds of this, and yet the Holy One of Israel, God Almighty, decides to link his self to a lineage of people like this who were so dysfunctional. What's Matthew telling us in the list? Connecting the Lord God to all these people, and some of them, we know their stories, are broken, hurting people, people in the midst of their sin and people who had failed miserably, yet God connects himself to these people. Perhaps it's as simple as this. The God is patient. God's patient. I was uh, trying to get into church this week. I was at this, the turn signal as you, you know, as you, as you come east or just before the hill, you turn into church. And um, it was raining and they closed down Mission Boulevard. You know the morning they closed down Mission Boulevard? And that causes chaos here around here because of all the schools. And I sat there in the turn lane trying to get into church for 15 minutes. And I'm getting hotter and hotter. I'm just totally impatient. I'm like, come on, i got to get into work. You know? And then I realized, oh, I'm preaching about patience this morning. <laughs> this Sunday, that's, that's not good. You know, I'm losing, I'm losing my cool. It happens occasionally when I drive. And, and, I, and I kept thinking, wow, I can't wait 15 minutes. God waited 42 generations to bring his son at just the right time, Scripture tells us. Just the right time. This passage is proclaiming to us that your God and my God, he is a patient God who works out his purposes at just the right time for us. Through disappointment, through our unfaithfulness, through our sin, through our dysfunction, through our rebellion, through our depravity, because we all are sinners separated from God. God is patient with you. Don't ever let that go. Don't ever forget that. He is so patient with us. He loves us so much that he would wait for us. He would wait to unveil his son at just the right moment through all these people's lives that has personal significance to me that he would wait for me because I know of my own brokenness and my own impatience, my own sinfulness, and yet God would look at me and he would look at Alice and be patient with us. He would be patient with, the, with us through our failings and our sinfulness and our brokenness. Maybe that's not your story. Maybe you're perfect. No, probably not. Yet God so loves you that he will wait for you to come. He will wait on you in your rebellion, in your sinfulness, and bring at just the right time a Savior who was Christ the Lord. In the moment that we celebrate this great gift, this season that we celebrate this, we celebrate the patience of God. And there are a list of these people in these names that remind me that every person matters to God. 
I know some of the names. You know perhaps some of the names. You know the big ones like Abraham and Isaac. You know of David and Solomon perhaps. But what about like Zadok? Where did he come from? I don't know a whole lot about some of these people, but every one of them mattered to God and were in the lineage of Jesus and are written here for purpose for us to understand that every one of them mattered to the Lord and he would wait for them to come to himself. I have an older sister who is wired just a little bit differently than I. Actually, when we were together, uh, my, one of my sons turned to me and he said, hey, your sister's a little different than you, huh? I started laughing like, yeah, she's uh, the firstborn and no knock on those of you who are firstborn among us, but um, she has some of those characteristics would, would flush itself out at Christmas time. At Christmas time, we'd have these presents and I would have to wait for my sister who would get her present and meticulously undo the tape from her present. She was savoring the moment, right? She was enjoying the present. While I was like, come on, would you open that thing? I need to get to mine, you know. And I'd rip my present open and I'd dig right in because that was how I was wired. She was wired differently. She was patient. Me, not so much. The picture of God is that he waited for these generations the just the right moment when history was at just the right point so that people would know in the moment of Christ's birth how glorious and wonderful his plan is. He would send his son as a gift for us, as a demonstration of his long-suffering patience with us and open that present up for us to discover his love that has been waiting for all these generations. That's why the genealogy is given to us. And then Matthew lists, kind of matter-of-factly, as a news reporter, some details. Did you hear the, the details that he's describing here about the incarnation, about the, the sending of his son? Verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place, took place this way. <clears throat> I'm going to give you the facts. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with the child from the Holy Spirit. What? Okay, if so you just zip over this story, and you just are so used to the story that maybe it doesn't grab you anymore. Think about what Matthew is saying. Take a step back from just the matter-of-fact way he puts it, and think about what he's saying. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Mary and Joseph were about to be divorced? Really? But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take David, uh, Mary as your wife, but that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Skip down a bit. And when Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He obeyed his dream. He dreamed about this, this wild thing, and then he just accepted it, face value, and, and obeyed it. And this son he was about to have would be called Jesus, and he would save people from sin. Those are some crazy details in this matter-of-fact reporting that, that Matthew gives us. I want to just think about it for a moment. 
why would Matthew say it this way? And why would we get these particular facts about Christmas? I think the big truth is that Matthew's communicating to us is that only God could do this. Only God could do this. I have friends that struggle um, with thinking about the, the account in Scripture about the birth of Christ. Virgin birth, now that's impossible, isn't it? But here's the logic of Scripture. God is the creator of all things. Could God not do anything he wants to do to create life and however he wants to do it? Well, of course he could. The almighty God could pull off a virgin conception, a virgin birth. Of course he could. He's the giver of life. John 1.3 that we talked about earlier, in him was life. He is the creator of all things. Of course he could do that. That makes since he could step beyond the laws of nature and do this so that we might know that this is an act of God. Only God could do this. And he's acting in human history on my account so that I might know him. And it proclaims that he is the giver of life. Matthew's also helping us with another great truth of Scripture, that he, the Lord God, is the great reconciler. Mary and Joseph find their relationship broken. They are struggling. Joseph is about to leave. Their betrothed, which is a step beyond engagement for us, they're absolutely committed, but they have not yet come under marriage vows, but they're committed to each other. And in that setting, Joseph finds that Mary, who he has not had sexual intercourse with, is pregnant. And he is wrecked, and he's just going to try to protect her reputation, but he's broken, and he's about ready to leave. He's going to file officially to leave her a certificate of divorce. And Mary, of course, is a broken woman. She knows this is of God. She's convinced at this point, but yet Joseph's going to bail on her. This is a broken relationship. And God steps in into the middle of it and does the miraculous. Only God can do this to be a reconciler of relationships like this. We got a phone call um, on Tuesday. I was in a meeting, so I got a message. And uh, it was my dear wife, Sue. And uh, she's, you know, you know, guys, when you get a message and you realize, okay, things are not, things are not right. Something's going on with my wife. You could tell it in the tone of her voice right away. And I thought immediately, what's going on with the kids? <laughs> and I was taking it back, and I was worrying, and, and um, then she's, she starts crying on the phone. This is not like Sue. She's pretty level-headed, if you know her. She's, and all of a sudden, she's crying on the phone. I'm trying to understand the message. I can't understand the message, and I hear the word divorce, and she's talking about two very good friends of ours, and it was just a shock, and um, you know, I hear her just grieving over this, and I was thinking immediately about the power of God in reconciliation how we in our sin wound each other, hurt each other, break a relationship with God and with each other and do all these horrible things to each other, with each other. But God redeems it. He loves to reconcile. Perhaps you're in the middle of a relationship right now that's broken. Listen, part of the message of this is God is a patient reconciler. 
He loves to bring reconciliation and health and wholeness. And the first step is between you and God. That's always where he's headed first with this. In our brokenness, our separation from God, our depravity, he takes our sinfulness and he heals it with his patient love. And he does it through the coming of his son and the call for us to trust in Jesus. So it's a story of reconciliation, even in the middle of the Christmas story. It's, it's a great, great message to us, to me personally, even in this week. And he is real hope. He really, truly is hope. It proclaims it in his names. There's three names of him given in this little portion that Matthew gives us. The first is that he is the Christ. He is the, the promised one, the Messiah that God was going to bring through history to redeem his people, to bring his people back, to provide for their salvation and their rescue. It was always his plan, and he spent 42 generations patiently working the plan to this point where he would bring Christ. That's why we sing about it around Easter, that he is our Christ, the Lord. And not only was it Christ, but his name would be called Jesus. In my, his, my family's history, there was a, a name that was passed down. A middle name, the name Marion. My dad did not like that middle name. And he blessed me with not giving me that middle name. So that in junior high, people wouldn't be, hey, Marion, Marion. I wouldn't have to deal with that. He broke that line of shame. Thank you, Dad. I want to appreciate you right now publicly. Marion. But this name, the name of Jesus, is a name that proclaims that the Lord saves. He personally rescues you. He came to save you from your sin, your brokenness, your wreckedness, your separation from God. You couldn't do anything, but he did it all, and he came with this message. This son, Joseph, would be named Jesus. Name him that because he came to save. And finally, the name Emmanuel, which he describes, means God's here in the house. He is with you. He is with us. He has come personally to be present. But these names, this is, this is why the Lord God came and why he did not do it in a normal way, why he did it in a way that only he could do. I still have a question. I know it might be a strange question, even a strange question for us to think about here at church. But what's the deal with Mary and Joseph having to wait? It gives us that little detail in the text here. So we know that Mary and Joseph got married. Not sure when exactly the end of the betrothal and their actual marriage happened. But we know they got married. Now they have to wait. I, I know that theologians tell us that that it's, it's about helping people all know that this was a virgin birth, and, and even at the birth, she was still a virgin. But help me out here. If, if God told me when I got married that I would have to wait another six months or whatever not to be sexually intimate with my wife, I would have gone crazy. Is that strange? I mean, can I just say that honestly? And, and all of us who are in that kind of a relationship would go crazy. Why would God, is, is God like this cosmic K-1 
killjoy saying, no, I'm going to take that joy from you, Mary and Joseph. You've got all this other stuff. I mean, think about the weight they had, the other pressures going on in their life. Did they need this more tension in their life? It's another layer of complexity in their relationship. What was God doing with that? Listen, God made our sexuality, and he made it in a way that is good, that is great. And he gave us these parameters for our sexuality to do it within a a marriage covenant. And it's good, and it's great. He invented the pleasure of it, and he invented the joy of it for our intimacy's sake. So why would he make them wait? Those of you who are single here, why does he make you wait? Why does he say, hold on, this is good, and all your culture is pressuring you to be sexually active, why wait? For those of you who are married and for a season of your life, for whatever reasons, perhaps they're physical or emotional, whatever, you need to wait. Guys, I'm speaking to you too. To wait. Why? What's to learn from that? Perhaps the Lord God was teaching Mary and Joseph a bit about his character and who their son would be. A patient God. This is a, one of those crucibles in our lives that God teaches patience with us in our sexuality. And it's a right place for us to learn. It's a healthy place for us to learn purity and holiness and patience, waiting on him for just the right time. So he tells them to wait, and he's teaching them through the waiting. He's a patient God who has waited all these generations. How do I respond to that kind of God who is so generous and is waiting for me? We began this year by encouraging everybody um, with a challenge, a breaking the mold challenge, to pray for five friends. Now, I'm not going to pour guilt on you if you've forgotten about that or if you're not still praying, but I encourage you once more to pick up that challenge and pray for your friends who have yet to come to the Lord God and, and experience life in Him. And perhaps you've been patiently praying and nothing's happened yet, and you're wondering, God, why not yet? Why not now? I'm waiting. But God has this perfect timing that's going to step into that. So this week I've been praying for this guy who's in a local coffee shop that I visit, and I've uh, been praying for him. And I haven't seen one inch of forward progress with all his prayer. I haven't seen anything, you know? And I'm thinking, God, okay, you know, I'm ready. What about you? <laughs> and so um, I get to the front of the line, and he's there, and I say, um, hey, how was your Thanksgiving? He said, oh, it's pretty good. You know, we're doing, watching some games and uh, hanging out with friends. What would you do? And I said, well, I, you know, I um, took my family down. We were down in Mexico. We're hanging out with some kids that we hang out with, some orphan kids. And he goes, oh, building the good karma, huh? You know, I said, well, actually, no, it wasn't really about karma. <laughs> and we have this brief conversation, but there's people growing restless. They're in the line behind me. And I know, okay, I'm going to have to continue this conversation. So I go to get my drink in another station. You know how they're operating. And, and the ladies in the line said, hey, I heard you went down to Mexico. Tell us about your thing, you know. It opened this crack, and it gave me hope that God has this perfect timing in the life of these people for me to speak 
and to turn that conversation in a way that attracts them to Jesus. Right? I still have hope for them. Some of you have seen friends as you've prayed come to know Jesus. Man, praise God for that. It's so cool. Some of you might not know it, but you're here because your friend has been praying for you this year. That's the power of God working in your life. And some of us, a lot of us have friends we've been praying for and we haven't seen much happen. God is patient. He'll wait for just the right moment. Keep praying. Keep praying. Don't you love that the Lord God is patient with us? So, his patience. There's a thing about it. It's to bring us to repentance. To bring us to a place where we get right with him. You might have come this morning and you've yet to have trusted Jesus with your life. This one who came for you. Who came in such a great, miraculous way, a proclamation that God is here with us. And if that describes you, I'm speaking to you right now, he would love to give you life. And all you have to do is turn to him, seek him to say, Lord, I want to place my dependence on you and not myself anymore. Confess to you that, man, I've, yeah, I've blown it, I've sinned, and I need your forgiveness. I need what you proclaim through Jesus and he will make you new. There are some of you who wrestled, who are trying to follow Jesus and wrestled with sin this week. Actually, there are all of you. God is patient with you and wants to draw you to intimacy with himself. Take this moment right now, however you came, and turn back to the Lord God and just say, Lord, I want your forgiveness. I want your healing and wholeness right now. Thank you for being patient with me. Take a moment right now where you're at. Close your eyes if you would. Give each other privacy. Just pray out to the Lord who loves to hear you, has been waiting and waiting for you patiently. Speak out to him and I will close in prayer. Father, I'm just so thankful for your patience with me and your patience with us. It's who you are. I'm so grateful that you came at just the right time after all this waiting for us to proclaim your love. Help us to respond to the generosity of your patience with us in the way that that's right in the way that turns back to you, that trusts you. And I pray you'd give the courage and the discipline for us to do that even now. We love you and love your generosity. All God's people said, amen.
Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. For more information on Bridges Community Church, please check out our website at www.bridgescc.org.